Please open your Bibles to Luke chapter 22, verses 39 through 46. The passage may be found in your pew Bibles on page 882. I will be reading from the English Standard Version, which is the translation that Pastor Wes Holland will be preaching from. Hear now what the Spirit is saying to the church. And he came out and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives, and the disciples followed him. And when he came to the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. And his sweat became like the great drops of blood falling down to the ground. And when he rose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping for sorrow. And he said to them, Why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. May God bless to our, uh, may God bless to our understanding the reading from his holy word. Let us pray. Oh, Lord God, I do pray that you would bless the uh, words of my mouth and uh, the meditation of our hearts as we gather around your word. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. In 1554, Hugh Latimer and Nicholas Ridley were arrested by Mary, uh, the Queen of England, she's better known as Mary, or I'm sorry, as Bloody Mary. And she wanted to return England to Catholicism, so she viciously persecuted all the leaders of the Protestant mo movement. And Latimer and Ridley were two of those Protestant leaders. In 1555, she had both of them burned at the stake together. Some of the woodcuts that, uh, that people um, drew or whatever they did uh, shows them on the same, uh, tied to the same stake uh, with their backs to one another. And as the fire was lit, Latimer shouted to Ridley and said, Be of good comfort, Master Ridley, and play the man. We shall this day light such a candle by God's grace in England as shall never be put out. They died bravely, confidently trusting in Jesus Christ. I want you to also consider the death of Joachim Marant, and I know I'm butchering uh, his French name, uh, but he died 200 years later. He was the brother-in-law of Napoleon and was appointed as the king of Naples. When he was captured, he was sentenced to uh, be executed by his captors. And on the day of his death, he had a, uh, a shock of his hair uh, cut off. He asked one of the, the officers to enclose it with a letter that he had written to his wife. His wife, again, was Napoleon's sister. And uh, also, the letter was addressed to his children as well. Then Morant took off his watch, 
and he gave it to the officer who was about to put him to death. He gave it to him as a gift. But before he parted with his watch, he lifted the lid and removed a tiny carved portrait of his wife. Morant held it tightly in the palm of his hand as he followed the soldiers out into the courtyard where they were preparing to kill him. Uh, the sergeant of the firing squad offered Morant a chair, but Morant said he wanted to die standing up. The sergeant offered to cover his eyes with a, with a cloth, but Morant said that he wanted to die with his eyes open. Morant said, I do have one request. I have commanded in many battles, and I would now like to give the word of command for the last time. The sergeant granted his wish. So Morant then stood against the wall of the castle, and he called out with a loud voice, Soldiers, form the line. Six soldiers drew themselves uh, to within about ten feet of him. And then he called out, prepare arms, present. The soldiers pointed their muskets at him. And then he said, aim at the heart, save the face, with a little grin um, on, on his face. And then after he had held up his hand to look for the final time at the portrait of his wife, he issued the final command, fire. Seeing these three brave men uh, die um, so, so bravely, two of them safely in the arms of Christ, I must pose a question to you this morning as we began examining our text. Why does Jesus seem reticent to die? Look again at verses 42 through 44. So he knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. And his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. In Matthew and Mark's um, account, he asked uh, three times for God to remove the cup. This reluctance of Jesus to die is especially confusing in light of the many different statements that Jesus made to the effect that he came into this world to die for his people. There's also Hebrews chapter 2, 15, uh, 2 verse 15, which says, Jesus came to deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. How can he deliver us from death, from the fear of death, if it appears that he was reticent, not wanting to die? I want to table this question for a few minutes. I want to plan it in your mind, but table it and we'll come back because it's such an important question. I want to examine another question first that arises from verse 40 and also verses 45 and 46. 
So this question that I want to, um, to ask and answer uh, first is, why does Jesus tell the disciples to pray that they may not enter into temptation? So again, verse 40, And when he came to the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. Verse 45, And when he arose from prayer, he came to the disciples, and he found them sleeping for sorrow. And he said to them, Why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. It it appears that every evening during the Passover week, that Jesus left Jerusalem. It was unsafe for him to remain there. And he walked a little over half a mile out to the Garden of Gethsemane, which was located on the Mount of Olives. Jesus intended to spend some serious time in prayer. And so he urged his disciples to do likewise, that they, of course, would not enter into temptation. We find out in verse 45, however, that instead of praying, they were sleeping. It, it says he found them sleeping for sorrow. What does it mean that he found them sleeping for sorrow? I'm not really in touch with all my emotions real well, so I'm not really sure what the, the emotions of his disciples uh, were where it says he was, found them sleeping for sorrow. I think my, my best guess is that uh, Christ's teaching during the Passover meal calls them to be so overcome with such great sorrow that they became exhausted. And excessive stress can sap all your strength. In verse 46, after waking them up, he exhorted them again, rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. I think the disciples did not recognize the magnitude of the spiritual battle that was being waged around them. They did not realize that the powers of darkness were at that moment being arrayed against Jesus. They had forgotten that Jesus had told them that Satan demanded that he be allowed to sift the disciples like wheat. And instead of sleeping, they needed to be praying. Jesus tells his disciples to pray because he knows that if they don't, they will fall, that they will give in to temptation. Let's pause for a moment and consider our own walk with Christ. Because many Christians are slack in their prayer lives. We struggle to pray as we know we should. We struggle to pray consistently. We struggle to pray fervently. And so we're slack. And, um, and um, a bit lazy in our prayer lives. And I think it's probably because we secretly wonder if prayer really accomplishes anything. Notice that Jesus is saying that prayer is the means of avoiding and resisting temptation. It is by the means of prayer that God imparts to us the power to resist temptation. Jesus doesn't give them a series of practical steps to resist temptation. He simply tells them to pray. 
Uh, Dale Ralph Davis has some words of wisdom for us. He says, It is the sheer simplicity of it all that should impress us when Jesus says, Keep praying not to enter into temptation. The way of continuing on with Ralph Dale Davis, the way of protection, the way to stand is by prayer. There is no training required for this, no, sen- no series of classes to take, no need to develop greater coping skills. Simply cry to God to keep you faithful in the coming circumstances. So the next time you find yourself in the grip of a tenta- temptation, I want to encourage you. Disengage from what you're doing and go to Christ in prayer. He will help you. How do I know? Because the Father sent Jesus uh, help in response to his prayers in our passage in verses 42 through 45. So let's look in more detail at Jesus' prayer as we take up again the question that I raised earlier. Why does Jesus seem reticent, maybe even afraid, to die? Let me be clear. Jesus was not unwilling or even afraid of death and dying. I was being provocative, hoping that you'd be engaged in thinking through this question for yourself. But please notice that there is a real hesitation on Jesus' part, even a terror in his soul. In verses 42 through 44, he is dreading the the cup in verse 42 where he says, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Well, what's in this cup? Well, it's the cup of our wicked and putrid sins mixed with the pure wrath and justice of God. That's what's in this cup. And on the cross, Jesus is going to become sin on the cross. How does it say in 2 Corinthians 5.21? He who knew no sin became sin for us. Therefore, he's also going to become a curse for us. Paul says in Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For us, God the Son, the second person of the Trinity, the Lamb of God who came to take away the sin of the world, Jesus who loves us so much, is going to become a curse for us. On the cross, Jesus became the focal point of the wrath of God. And he received the full, unmitigated, undiluted wrath of Almighty God. And he received it all in a moment. The debt he incurred by becoming sin for us on the cross was an infinite debt. And he paid it all while he was hanging on that cross. God's wrath was concentrated and focused on Jesus. What Jesus suffered on the cross was worse than anyone than anything was worse than what anyone will suffer in hell. Because he was suffering for millions of people's countless sins. 
in that concentrated, small space while he was on the cross. Everyone who dies outside of Jesus Christ will go to hell. The Bible does not equivocate on that point. It is very clear because everyone who dies outside of Jesus Christ will spend an eternity paying the debt of their sins. Christ paid millions of people's sins, your sins, my sins, all in that short space of time on the cross. Our Lord Jesus hung on the cross for six hours, but the final three hours, from noon until 3 p.m., he was totally exposed to God's utter abhorrence of sin. It was not his fear of death that caused his reluctance to drink the cup. Rather, it was the combination of our sin and God's wrath that terrified him. And we must remember that our Lord is both God and man. We cannot allow his divinity to swallow up his humanity. We must never think that going to the cross was easier for Jesus because he was the Son of God. Jesus suffered more in those three hours than anyone will ever know. Trying to describe his suffering is impossible. In fact, it even left Charles Spurgeon, who was never at a loss for words, it lost, left him completely speechless. Spurgeon says, since it would not be possible for any believer, however experienced, to know for himself all that our Lord in, endured in mental suffering and hellish malice, it is clearly far beyond the preacher's capacity to set it forth to you. Jesus himself must give you access to the wonders of the garden. As for me, I can but invite you to enter the garden. Jesus is God. Jesus himself abhors sin with pure revulsion. But he became sin on the cross. The very thing that was the opposite of him. He became. And he enjoyed eternal, intimate, and unbroken communion with his father. But his father forsook him. On the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus cried out. And though Jesus never sinned, he suffered greater wrath than any has ever suffered. It is little wonder that Jesus wants this cup to be removed. Maybe he's thinking how Isaac was spared by God at the last moment when Abraham had the knife uh, lifted high above his son. I don't know what Jesus was, was thinking when he was uh, asking God to remove that, that cup from him, regardless of what Jesus is thinking as he made that request. He did not waver in his commitment and in his submission to the Father because he continued on to say, Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Even as Jesus submitting himself to the will of, of his Father, 
it did not soften or quiet his anguish. He was at the end of his human resources. He was so weak he could not go on. B.B. Warfield, speaking about the depth of uh, the depths of Christ's struggle, said, "In the presence of this mental anguish, the physical tortures of the crucifixion retire into the background, and we may well believe that our Lord, though He died on the cross, yet died not of the cross, but of a broken heart." That is um, to say, of the strain of his mental suffering. Christ's suffering was more, far more, than the thought of mere dying. Notice what, what God did for Jesus in verse 43. When Jesus could not go on, his father sent an angel to attend to him. So, and there appeared to him, verse 43, an angel from heaven strengthening him. I should point out that God does, uh, does not remove the anguish and the suffering that Jesus is experiencing in his soul. You see what the angel did for him? He strengthened Jesus so that he was enabled to pray more earnestly. Verse 44, and being in agony. This is after the angel is strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. When we are in the midst of a trial or a temptation and we cry out to God, he may not... uh, remove the suffering or change our circumstances, but God does send help. (laughs) And frankly, he doesn't just send some anonymous angel to strengthen us. He sends us the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, and the Holy Spirit strengthens us. The strengthening that the Holy Spirit gives us... um, gives us more intensity in prayer as we continue to seek uh, to trust God during the trial. So he may not remove the trial. He may not remove the suffering. He may send you the Holy Spirit to increase the intensity of your prayers while you're suffering so that you will more earnestly seek God's face and not rely upon yourself. Let me emphasize again, Jesus' agony here is not lifted after the angel appears and strengthens him. Where it says he prayed more earnestly, the word for prayed is in the imperfect tense, giving the sense that he continued in agonizing prayer for an extended time. And his human strength was so strained that his sweat became like uh, great drops of blood falling to the ground from his head. In Mark's account, it says that Jesus was very sorrowful, even to the point of death. Our Lord was suffering. Our Lord was in agony. Our Lord was at the very end of his ability to go on. Such was his suffering at the prospect of drinking the cup that the Father had portioned out for him. Our sin 
and the Father's wrath. This sermon has been a bit intense, I would say. Uh, Luke has allowed us to see inside the soul of our Savior uh, in his intense agony. And so as we bring this sermon to a close, I want to remind you why Jesus was willing to go forward and drink this cup right down to the dregs. However, before we do that, I think it behooves us to peek at verse 45. Because when our Lord rises from, from prayer, I'm sure he is exhausted. But he is resolved to go forward to the cross. Verse 45 and when he rose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping for sorrow. He said to them, why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into the temptation. He rose from prayer, and he did not look back. There was no equivocation on his part. He looked forward to that awful cross and kept his face focused towards doing his Father's will. Why is he willing to go forward? Love, that's it. He loved his Father, and he loved his people. Philip Ryken says, If I understand uh, Gethsemane at all, it means that Jesus loves me even more than I can imagine. It's not just that he died for me, but that he died this horrible, damnable, God-forsaken death that no one would ever want to die. He died this death because there was no other way for sinners to be saved. No easier road of redemption. No alternative to the cross. If you were in, in Christ, you will never have to suffer what our Lord Jesus suffered. He suffered in your stead. He suffered in your behalf. That's why he went to the cross for you. It was the joy that was set before him, the author of Hebrews tells us, that sent him to the cross. And you were his joy. Oh, trust him with your life. Trust him with your soul. Trust him with your eternity. And trust him with your trials and your temptations. Go to him. Seek his face earnestly for holiness, even when you are right in the midst, right in the middle, right in the grip of temptation. He loves you, and he will strengthen you like he was strengthened as we pray together. Oh, Lord Jesus. Frankly, I don't know that I have ever uh, fully appreciated um, the, the terrible cup that you drank um, in my behalf. Lord, that an eternity of wrath was focused like a laser beam on you while you were on the cross, taking my sins, suffering the wrath that I deserved to suffer. God, 
we ask that you would help us all to love our Lord Jesus with a love incorruptible, to love our Lord Jesus with a love that presses us toward holiness. Lord, help us to love our Lord Jesus knowing that he has loved us far better than we have ever loved him. We ask this in his name. Amen.